RadioInfluence.com. One week away from the first college football playoff rankings. This is Rush the Field, the college football podcast. I'm Scott Seidenberg, alongside Chris Landry, veteran coach and scout from LandryFootball.com. And the biggest news around the college football world last weekend, Chris, was the stunning upset of Ohio State at the hands of Purdue. Now, I say stunning because Ohio State was number two, but in my mind, it really wasn't that stunning. I expected Purdue to battle hard with them, and of course... Of course, everybody asks the question, Chris, what happens now with Ohio State's chances to make the college football playoff? I'll tell you right now, it doesn't mean much because, say, one loss Ohio State team probably still has a great chance to make the playoff. But what I wanted to ask you, when you watch this game on film, what concerns you the most about the way that Ohio State played against Purdue and West Lafayette? Their lack of a running game. Um, Through the football 73 times, you see somebody throw the football 70 times, they're usually on the losing end. They're struggling. But was that by design, or was that well, because of what I Purdue th- was doing? I think it was going into the game. I think the flow of the game dictated it, but they got a, too far away from the running game, in my view. That was a problem. I think they got behind a little bit, and that just precipitated the need to have to, we've got to chase, we've got to go. And and obviously, to me, the game went differently than I ever anticipated because what I thought was going to happen was, hey, Purdue's going to score points on Ohio State because I've seen Ohio State struggle defensively with all their injuries up front, and I said, Purdue's going to score a lot of points. But Ohio State can match points with Purdue, and they'll find they'll win by outscoring them. It didn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a combination of – I think Ohio State not being able to keep up points-wise and getting away from the run, which contributed to their problems on the defensive end. On the defensive end, I I thought they played way too much man. I thought they got sucked in and the the jet sweeps – the safeties were responsible for the jet sweep, and the linebackers were a little too crowded towards the line of scrimmage, and I thought they got washed up a little bit in some of the misdirection run game for Purdue. And I thought the big play after big play after big play by the Boilers were great game design, but I thought really a poorly job adjusting for Ohio State. Listen, I know Ohio State is banged up. I know they're playing with some injured defensive linemen. I know they've got safeties that are injured still. They're more talented than Purdue. And mm-hmm. Rondell Moore is great, and Blaw played outstanding. They've Purdue, let's give Purdue a lot of credit. They have improved immeasurably since the zero and three start. And remember what I always say: you never stay the same. You either get better or get worse. And that team has gotten just demonstrably better through the course of the year. But I think they caught Purdue playing well, and I thought the Buckeyes had a poor game plan and did a very poor job. And one of the things we talked about, I did not expect necessarily expect it, but I didn't expect it against Iowa last year either. And they got pounded by Iowa, and we're starting to see a trend with it. Um, I think it's a combination of maybe going in thinking that they can do one thing and being, quite frankly, out-prepared and mm. out-strategized in the game, and they got themselves into a you know a downhill run where it became a problem. So I, I think when you're a team that has a superior talent – and you're throwing it 70 times, and you, you're you chasing this group, and you're, I mean, you're turning the football. I mean, there's a lot of things that went wrong, but it, come down, it comes down to this. Ohio State couldn't defend the run, and they couldn't run the football. 
And that is an alarming problem that, look, we can talk about all we want about, well, they can theory. Anybody in theory can do anything. Yeah. But the reality is Ohio State's got a long way to go to fix some things. And they've got a bye week. Then they've got Nebraska. But they better get ready by November 10th when they go to East Lansing. If they don't fix things, this is a problem. Now, do they have the personnel to fix it? Yes. Do they have a coaching staff that has enough pedigree and enough resources to fix this? They absolutely do. So, look, we shall see. I mean, making predictions is very dangerous in this business because of this reason. You would not think that they would have this problem. Uh, I could see this perhaps in East Lansing more than than I could in, in, in Purdue, but Purdue's just playing really well and had a really good game plan and a good matchup, and we'll see how well Ohio State uh, gets better during this bye week and then uh, you know get a little try at Nebraska before they go to Michigan State, then Maryland, and then finish the season up at home against uh, you know who. Well, let's get the let's get the the question out of the way, Chris. That that I mentioned before I asked you the question, and that is, can a one loss Ohio State Big Ten champion make the college football playoff? Do you think in your mind that the committee would? would leave them out because I can't see the committee leaving them out knowing how talented they are. If you truly want to put in the best four teams, which is the argument that we have every single year, the talent level on Ohio State is on par with the best teams in the country. And if they are a one-loss Big Ten champion with wins at East Lansing, win win against Michigan, and then winning the Big, uh, Big Ten championship game against whoever comes out of the West – I think the committee looks at that team and puts them into the final four. I, I don't think that's possible. I, I don't think you can answer that question because, you know, are they one of the four best teams when it's time to select the four best? That's fair. And, and, and so, I, you know, right now, certainly they don't look like it. Um, but in theory, but after beating Michigan and then well, whoever comes out but, of the but, West, but yeah. how they play in those games? Mm-hmm. How do they play against Nebraska, Michigan State, Maryland, Michigan, and then in the Big Ten championship game if they go that far? How do they look? Do they do they look you know like a team? Because quite frankly, even in their wins, they haven't looked all that impressive. Um, it, it, if they look like one of those four best teams, absolutely. But can I say uh, definitely if they win it? No. What if Oklahoma looks more impressive than Ohio State? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it it comes down between those two. I'm not saying it will, but it comes down between those two. Um, Then you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, Oklahoma lost to Texas. Uh, They came back, lost a close game. And you're comparing it. If Oklahoma looks better to me and to the committee, then – then I you absolutely, you know, if Notre Dame wins out, Clemson wins out, Alabama wins out, and it comes down to Oklahoma, Ohio State. Well, again, it depends upon not just what the record is and if they win out in these scenarios, it's how they look. So to answer your question, yes, if they are a one-loss Big Ten champion team, they're absolutely still in it. But it is no longer a fait accompli that if they're unbeaten and they win it, I think that's that's where how the that's kind of the line of demarcation, right or wrong, for the committee that they tend to look at that. And you don't lose a game, and you're one of the big boys in a big conference. You get a bump, even if it's not real impressive. I think you lose a game, then I think they really start looking and and, and you know parcel it out a little bit. I think that's, you know, necessarily at the end of the year. Do you look at it? Are they one of the four best teams? 
Then you have to look at it. Have they been one of the four best teams all year long? Well, I, I can tell you that right now, I would say that Oklahoma's a little bit more impressive in terms of how they've played week in and week out. But I would agree with you. Ohio State is more talented. But they're not going to select the four most talented teams. They're going to select the four best as deemed by a number of different categories. And you know me well enough to know that I determine it on how they look on film. I'm a film study guy. And so it's hard for me to evaluate how I rank them on November, you know, 25th when that's, you know, Four games from now, five games from now, after the Big Ten championship game, it's not just as simple as if they win out, this is where they are. To me, it's how do they look and how how do they to other teams look in comparison to them. So tell me right now, is Michigan looking the best in the Big Ten? Yeah, I, you know, I even felt last week, and I even mentioned it, and I, I think here and in certainly in Landry football that. Right now, Michigan has been playing the best ball in the Big Ten. I, I, I well, and I'm, let me say this: I, I think they are the best defensive team. Now, I tell you, a team that nobody's talking about that's played really good football in the Big Ten all year long, and it's Iowa. They lost to Wisconsin, but they've been consistent. They look better than Wisconsin now. Uh, they've got a tough road. They've got Penn State this week that has more talent, but we'll see how that plays out. But Michigan has more talent on defense. They're really, really good on that side of the ball. I don't think they're elite offensively, um, but I think they're certainly good enough, and I think we saw them against Michigan State eventually wear them down. But the key is, you know, how does that game match up on the 24th? How much better does Ohio State get? And quite frankly, how much better does Michigan get? Michigan's got some hurdles too. So, um, you know, I'm not ready to say, hey, Michigan, because they're better today than Ohio State, I, I'm, I'm going to wait to, you know, the week before that I can absorb more tape and say, you know what, this week I like Michigan or I like Ohio State in that game, um, you know, at the end of the year. Let's talk rankings now, Chris. And I'm not talking about the playoff ranking. I'm talking about where the teams rank right now based off their performances so far this season. And if you look at the AP Top 25 rankings, of course, Alabama and Clemson are right there at the top, followed by Notre Dame, the three undefeated teams. And we're not going to count UCF as an undefeated team in this conversation, even though and they're going to have an argument and they'll always have an argument. But right now, we're not going to include them in this conversation. But when you look at four through, let's say, nine, LSU, Michigan, Texas, Georgia, Oklahoma, Florida. You see it. You say it every single week, Chris. You can flip flop all those teams. I can't tell you right now that LSU, Michigan, or Texas deserves to be number four in the country because I don't see either of those teams as the fourth best team in the country. In fact, I don't know who the fourth best team in the country is. Well, they're all flawed. I mean, LSU is still very average on offense, and they're very good defensively. Oklahoma is really explosive on offense. They're not good on defense. Georgia, you know, everybody's forgotten Georgia because they got embarrassed by LSU and Baton Rouge. There's, you want to talk talent, they've got talent. Now, they've been banged up a little bit, had a bye week. We're going to see Georgia and Florida this week. Florida beat LSU. They're a good team. I think Florida and LSU are very comparable. I think Florida's been a little bit more balanced, but we're going to see in that game uh, how it plays out. Uh, I do like Georgia a little bit in the game. Uh, but we shall see. So I, I, I would still say that Georgia 
is, if I were to look at it, um, still has the most talent of that group. I would say that Michigan is playing well. Um, but you're right. Texas is beating Oklahoma. Oklahoma looks a little better and a little bit more complete now. But we may see them play again at the end of the year in the Big 12 championship game. Um, you know, West Virginia is still in it, but struggling. A lot of football left. So while we want to make that claim, I can tell you that I can throw those teams in the hat and say, boy, they're all vulnerable. And, you know, Kentucky is very physical, but not explosive on offense. Um, you know, AM to me is a team that's very solid, and I would put them comparable to an LSU in a Florida, and they're not ranked nearly as high. Um, Iowa is very underrated and every bit capable of beating Florida or LSU or teams like that. So I, I think you throw a number of teams, four through about 14, 15, yeah. and I, I do think that there's, quite frankly, there's a lot of good in some areas, really good, but there's some areas of each of team that just are not that impressive and on a given weekend can get beat. I think there is definite separation. It's Alabama, and I think clearly as the season has developed, Clemson has established itself as number two, a clear number two, and I think there's a drop-off there, and I think because they're unbeaten, Notre Dame is going to get the push, and they should. They've beaten Michigan. But, but I think there's a little vulnerability there. And if there is a team that's likely to lose, it could be Notre Dame. But if they win, even if their schedule not being as great because of some teams that are not as good as they have been, I think that when I look at Notre Dame on tape, I see a really good defensive team and an offense that's pretty good. Now, they didn't play well against Pitt. I want to see more and more if that begins a trend or they fix it. Because to me, when you're looking at complete teams, for the most part, since they've got Ian Book in, they're running the football well, have mm-hmm. some production in the passing game, and that defense is for real. I mean, Notre Dame, for example, is not going to get blown out by anybody like Ohio State got blown out by Purdue. They're just too good defensively. So I, I think that those are the three best teams I've seen on film. And if you were to ask me right now who would be the fourth best – I would put them slightly Michigan, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Oklahoma, and LSU. Now you're saying, oh, Landry, what are you doing? You got Georgia, uh, beat, uh, got beat by LSU. I, I think that Georgia going forward is, and what they've done overall, is they're a little bit more potentially complete. And um, so, I mean, I'm okay with keeping LSU ahead. But to me, I think that plays out. I think it's going to be really interesting to see because in the SEC, we're going to see a lot of clarity because a lot of these top teams are in the SEC and they're going to be playing each other really soon and separating. And I think we need to start to take a step back and say, okay, this is how they're going to stack up in the SEC. But how some of these teams that might lose this game in that game, how do they stack up against the rest of the country? Well, you mentioned Georgia against Florida. That, for all intents and purposes, that's an elimination game in both the SEC East and the national championship picture, right? Probably. Uh, I I can't see a two-loss non-championship team, like a two-loss non-competitor in the SEC championship getting into the college football playoff. Well, you're talking playoffs now. Well, And we I'm also talking SEC East. Well, but you got Kentucky, and you can't forget Kentucky yet because Kentucky's got Georgia, and I think Georgia, if I were to venture a guess, would beat 
both Florida and Kentucky. But let's just say that Florida beats Georgia and Georgia beats Kentucky, and now you got two losses. You got two losses. You got two losses. Well, no, Florida only has one loss. Yeah, but we don't know, you know, how they finish. Yeah, how they finish. So, you know, Florida, you know, is in really good shape. But if, you know, what if Georgia beats Florida and gives them two losses? Then Kentucky comes back and, you know, I mean, Kentucky may lose to Missouri in a matchup and then beat Georgia. Uh, then you got everybody with two losses. So I, I, it's not quite done yet. If you told me, you know, to venture a guess, I would agree with you. This game is likely to determine the East because I think these are the two best teams in the East. And I know people are saying, well, wait a minute, Landry, didn't, didn't Kentucky beat Florida? Yes, they did. I think Florida's a little bit better now, and I'm a little bit worried about Kentucky's passing game or lack thereof. So I do think Georgia-Florida will ultimately determine the East and, you know, the opponent for Alabama um, in the West, which is where I think this is headed. That game is the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Now, it's no longer called that because, uh, you know, political correctness. Oh, and you don't yes. want to talk about drinking and things like that. But it is the largest tailgate, they say, in college football because the game's played in Jacksonville right along that Florida-Georgia line. No, not the country music group. I'm talking about the, the border between the two states, Chris. <laughs> but, but why? what makes this rivalry so great and what makes this just the scene to be seen in college football. It's um cuz I would rank it right up there with with the um the the Red River shootout yes. because you know you have the Texas State Fair and then everyone goes and tailgates and whatnot. But this is right up there in terms of atmospheres in college football tailgate wise and of course the rivalry. Yeah, it is. Well, you hit on it. It's it's the locale. I mean, it's it's still a short flight for Georgia and a bus ride for Florida, mm-hmm. but it's right there. I mean, it's, you know, the the irony is Texas and OU, uh, it's the same exact It's exactly right in Texas the middle. It's like, I think it's like one mile difference or yeah, something like just, that. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. But this, this is, uh, you've got the, the, the border, uh, a border state. Um, historically, you know, obviously even before the days of the split and being in the East-West, they, they played every year. And the recruiting battles were always, uh, you know, hefty. And it, it, to be honest with you, it was Georgia, Florida, and then Alabama, Tennessee. Now, in the old days of General Nealon and then, you know, early days of Johnny Majors, then, then Alabama, Tennessee was big because those were really, really good. Florida wasn't very good for years. Georgia had the, you know, under Wally Butts and before Vince Dooley, they were much better. Florida didn't get good. Even when Steve Spurrier played, they just, that Florida just was not much of a program, quite frankly. They're a new program. But then once Florida got really good, particularly Charlie Pell and then Galen, but more, and then Galen Hall, but then more importantly, when Steve Spurrier, then they dominated Georgia. And so it, it's, uh, it's a very, a lot of it has to do with the modern day Spurrier and his success and the frustration by Florida fans. It is a all along from the Athens to the north of Florida area are a lot of beaches and a, a lot of um, a lot of vacation spots. And what makes it unique is the fans in those two places, particularly in Georgia, St. Simon Islands and all those places, that they would use that as their fall vacation spot. They'd come in sometimes two weeks prior to the game, hmm. kind of leading up to it. 
combination, little fall vacation, and, you know, the game. It's, it's that important. So you got that element where so many people would get there and play, and it was kind of, you know, down the middle, and it's in Florida. And there was a discussion along the lines down the road to, to play the game at the, at least Georgia wanted it, and, and Florida said, no, no, we'll, we'll keep it. Steve Spurs wanted to say, no, let's keep it. Hell, it's still a bus ride for us, and it's still in the state. But it's the combination that it's one of the more unique things and that it was a neutral site. You know, for years and years, you know, uh, Alabama-Auburn played in Birmingham. Yes. And and so that it was Alabama-Auburn and Georgia-Florida in the neutral site type of games. And you had it years ago, LSU Ole Miss used to play in Jackson. But, you know, you, we've gotten away from that a little bit. Uh, but the the lasting tradition of having it at a neutral site and having those two schools that let's you know let's just call it what it is is those have been the schools that have been the real um, forces in the East at least in modern times. Of course, Tennessee was in that group too for a long time. But it's that old border rivalry, and which makes it uh, when you got two successful programs in the SEC and you got the border rivalry. I mean, it's big. It's look, it's. Kansas, Missouri was always big, but the programs in football were always kind of bad, and now they're not even the same league, mm-hmm. so they've lost some of that. But, you know, with Georgia, Florida, they've maintained a lot of that for some of the reasons I just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, look, we see it all the time in college basketball, right? Whether it's Duke, North Carolina, the Tobacco Road rivalry, or even Louisville against Kentucky. You know, we see it all the time. And even Louisville and Kentucky football, I mean, right now would be a pretty good uh, good, 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 good game because of Kentucky stepping up in class. And, and let me talk about Kentucky here for a second. Because you mentioned them as next week potentially having – the SEC East matchup with Georgia. How much does this game against Missouri fall into the trap game category because they might be looking ahead to that big game against Georgia in two weeks? It's a trap game, and as I kind of alluded to, it's a dangerous game, not just for being a trap game. It is a styles make fights, and this is not a really good style fight. I mean... it's a contrast in styles. Missouri is a really good passing game, more finesse, and not nearly good at the line of scrimmage. Kentucky, very physical at the line of scrimmage, play small ball, uh, but boy, they can't come from behind and, and, and be effective in the passing game. So what happens here? You know, on the road, does Kentucky go in? Do they get behind in this game? I don't think Kentucky can come from behind. I'm not talking about one possession. I'm talking about uh, if they get behind a couple of scores and it gets a little fast-paced, Kentucky's not going to fare well in it. And that's their that's their problem, and they're not they're just doing getting nothing out of the passing game. So Mizzou can score some points. And look, if Mizzou can score 20 points in this game, I don't know. If, you know, Kentucky uh, can can match points other than if they play game control, which is they've got to dominate Missouri at the line of scrimmage. Missouri's going to load the box, and Kentucky's got to be able to make some plays, keep Missouri's offense off the field, and win the game You know, in a slow game. That's how they did it against Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt and Kentucky played a neutral game, and Kentucky just wore out Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt didn't have much offense either, but Kentucky's just a little bit better, a little bit more talented. This is a very dangerous game. For the reason that you mentioned, and I think some that I just mentioned, um, does it, it, it's going to be quite a challenge. Does it surprise you at all that if you look at the Vegas line, Missouri is favored by a touchdown? It It is. Um, I think that it, it is an indication of, obviously, 
the if you look at it, Kentucky's been a big time underdog against Florida, uh, South Carolina, A&M, and, and they've won most of them. So I think it's a byproduct that people just don't buy into Kentucky. And the game's and, in Columbia also. Right, and remember, you know, the line is based upon not how good the teams are, but where the 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 configuration Correct. is to where they think the people are going to bet. Now, that, that sometimes that's one and the same with people's perceptions of who's better. I mean, listen, when people ask me who's better, this game is – that's why I said it's one of the more interesting games of the weekend because – you know, this game means a lot more for Kentucky. If they if they win this game, that Georgia game is huge. And I don't think they'll beat Georgia, but just think of the environment if they go in with one loss to play Georgia as opposed to coming off a loss to Mizzou. This game is huge for them, but it is a tough game because it is on the road and it's facing a team with contrasting style so to me it's about it's like an old boxing match does does the does the brawler get the guy in the corner and nail him or does the guy that is the punch and jab guy can use the whole ring and win the boxing match that's what it is here and to be honest with you it's too close to call for me I mean Mm -hmm. it is that close even though Kentucky's had the better season yeah well another game that's a pretty close spread and you know, last week it was the same way, and obviously it didn't play out that way. Was Washington State against Oregon? Washington State now coming off that victory has to play at Stanford this week in another projected close game. Based off what you saw last week from Washington State in that victory over Oregon, which I was very impressed with, I thought that Oregon would would win that game and. Well, they just didn't, uh, and they weren't even close. The score a little closer than the game actually was, Chris. Does Washington now pose the Pac-12's best chance to get a one-loss champion? Well, yeah. Well, yeah, they're, they're the only one-loss team. Yeah, I mean, but you yeah, know what I'm saying, like, to, yeah, to get into exactly. the college ball playoff conversation. There would be the only one now mm-hmm. um, because of, you know, the one loss. Now, they, they, they're – Pre-conference schedule is going to hurt them again. You know, Wyoming, San Jose State, Eastern Washington. But, you know, and they've got some tough games. Now, Stanford, who they go on the road this week uh, and play, is not as good as they have been. Um, it's going to be a challenge for them to get back up. I, I had a feeling they play very well against Oregon at home in a big moment, uh, seize the moment. I think Stanford's beatable. But beatable. But Stanford, Cal, and, and the road against Colorado are going to be challenging, and that's been a little bit of a – a problem for Washington State is to sustain. One thing I do know is they don't match up well against Washington, and they haven't. And they play the Friday after Thanksgiving, and I don't see them winning the Apple Cup. And so, I, you know, I don't see them as being good enough to sustain it throughout the rest of the season and go with one loss. And to answer your question, if they do win out, I think they're going to need a whole lot of chaos and a whole lot of help, meaning – you know, uh, the Pac-10 would have to be in trouble. I mean, they'd have to kind of eat each other up. Notre Dame would have to lose. They'd have to they'd have to create an opening for Washington State because right now it is clear that the Pac-12 looks on the outside looking in. So any combination of the Big 12, the Big 10 kind of having a, a complete collapse, Clemson somehow losing a game and then losing the conference championship game. I mean, you know, that that's what's going to have to happen to create an opening for Washington State because they're definitely on the outside looking in because they haven't beaten anybody impressive other than in their own league against Oregon. And again, we look at that league as being, you know, pretty decent, but nobody special. They don't have that win mm-hmm. that, you know, 
that, that the other teams are going to have. I mean, Michigan is going to have a win that's impressive. LSU is going to have a win that's impressive. Notre Dame has a win over Michigan. Um, you know, Texas over Oklahoma. Oklahoma is going to have a – you know, all these teams – have you know better wins than Washington State has, so I think their chances are slim and none. Well, the the one tiny chance that they do have that the conference has to root for, and I guess fans in Pullman have to root for, is that they win out, and USC is the representative from the South in the Pac-12 title game because then Washington State can beat USC, avenge their loss from earlier in the year, and they could stake claim as a one-loss Pac-12 champion that beat every team on their schedule, that avenged a loss to USC, and then you know that might be the only well, chance that they have. Well, but again, they're going to need further help. Than of course, that because. Of course. They lose out to the Big Ten champion. Um, at this point, they're going to lose out to the Big 12 champion. Those would be ahead of them because those have had more impressive roads. So, again, the Big 12 has to eat themselves up. The Big Ten have to eat themselves up. And then at that point, I don't know that a two-loss team that is impressive, and, and again, who that is and how they look, that, that, that remains to be seen. But I think they would fit um, over Washington State. I think if when you look at this team, that that was a good win last week. When you look at them, um, I don't see them as one of the top four teams. I think they've got plenty of teams that are you know quite a bit better in a number of leagues. Um, that, that I just I don't see them getting in. So I, I think they would have to be complete chaos, including, you know, the Big Ten, the Big 12 eating each other up. Notre Dame, uh, I think Notre Dame might need to lose two times before they mm. still get in as a one-loss team over Washington State by virtue of their win over Notre Dame and the fact that they just look like a better team than Washington State. So, no, I, I don't see Washington State as a real viable option unless there's complete chaos. Should Texas be on upset alert in Stillwater? Yeah, Oklahoma State's not played very well. And, you know, these teams are a little bit dangerous. They've got some talent. They, they've they not been able to throw the football, been as explosive. And Texas is a really solid defensive team. But with the injury at quarterback, the the throwing shoulder, you don't know. This is, this is dangerous on the road. There's no question about it. Texas has a tough road. And they may be right now the most complete team with playing pretty good defense. But it's it's going to be a tough road for them, and I don't see Texas, you know, running the table the rest of the way unbeaten. I I just don't see it. I don't know that it happens this week, but I think it's happening. Chris, you know what? What I wanted to get in with you, uh, get into with you, the call that was made against LSU last week, uh, Devin White, the linebacker. He got a targeting penalty, which triggered a suspension because it was in the second half of the game. He's suspended for the first half of their next game. That next game is against Alabama on November 3rd. I think the targeting rule, in my opinion, it's great because you want to, you're trying to deter away from certain hits, right? You want to make the game safer. Uh, I never liked the idea of reviewing the play and then keeping the penalty, but letting the kids stay in the game. You know, it's it's just it, it's really mumbled up over the years. But Ed Orgeron's not happy about it. He wants changes to the targeting rule and how it's enforced, and he thinks that the way that the rule is enforced was unfair because of how White made contact 
with Mississippi State quarterback Nick Fitzgerald. When you watched that play, did you see targeting? And what's your overall thoughts on the targeting rule and the way it's enforced? Well, let me get into the overall targeting first because I think it leads to what I thought of it. Um, I think the targeting rule is too black and white, and most of the rules that you have in football have a lot of gray. You know, it's gray area whether it's holding or interference. And I think, to me, targeting should be when you just do that. You target someone with the intent to go high, and if someone does that, they should be a 15-yard penalty, and they should be suspended from the game immediately and suspended for the next game. That, to me... Uh, is how you handle that. When you have helmet-to-helmet contact that's inadverted or you just go a little too high, you can tell the difference. We all can see the difference. That should be a 15-yard penalty, and the player is not suspended from the game and and certainly not suspended for previous games. I think Devin White, um, I think that ruling was was inaccurate. I don't think he went high, okay? And anything that goes high is going to get called. That, to me, should be a 15-yard penalty. And yes. then you play on, and he's in the game. And well, I agree with you, because that's, that's not the spirit of the rule. I don't think that there was he, – he didn't launch himself intentionally with the, with, with the intent of targeting high. I think just that was – that's, that was a result of trying to make a play, not a result of trying to lay a vicious right. blow on Right, and people say, well, he didn't mean to make a con- – it doesn't matter if he meant to make a contact. It yeah. did, and that's that. Now um, – if they wanted to, from a judgment standpoint, after he got done, he did stand over the player. If you want to add another sportsmanlike con, unsportsmanlike conduct, sure. or take him out of the game for that, because that can cause problems, and we saw it led to some issues in Michigan, Michigan State, and whatnot. That's fine, but to me, targeting is is an intent to throw yourself and to. Uh, to show no regard for avoiding the helmet-to-helmet contact, and that to me is should be kicked out of the game and is suspended for the next game. People don't like the idea you're suspended for the next game, but let me explain why that is. Um, because if you didn't do that and you were only kicked out for the game, well, then late in the game in the fourth quarter, uh, you might see somebody. I know you would see yeah, it. Somebody try to make a play yeah. and go after the quarterback uh-huh. or somebody else. And and, and what sacrifice? It's five minutes left in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, it's worth it then to take a cheap shot at somebody. So that's why they have that rule. So, again, I think to differentiate between it, – it's like this. You have – roughing the kicker and running into the kicker. And they're two different delineations of penalties, and we don't have that for targeting. And I think that was a case where it was not what I would consider targeting. Now, here's the thing. By the letter of the rule, that was was called like they want them to call it. I just don't like the way they're calling it, and I think there should be a separation of that so that I think he should have gotten a penalty because he was high, and you've got you to get that out of the game, so that's what you're going to do. But he gets, he gets a 15-yard penalty, he stays in that game, and he's certainly uh, eligible for the next game. Final thing before we head out of here, Chris, the most interesting non-top 25 game to you this week. I'll give you mine. Friday night, Boston College against Miami. Another chance for A.J. Dillon to rack up the yards on the ground. Yeah, I think it it's going to be an interesting one. Um, the Coastal's kind of a mess. Hey, the ACC's a mess. Let's just call it what it is outside of Clemson. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, who's the best team in the Coastal? Anybody? Anybody? Is it Tech? Is it Virginia? Hey, how about that game at the end of the year? Maybe that means something. Miami's still in it. Um, you got some issues there, no question. BC's played well. Um, five and two record. No, I, I like this team. I, I like this this Boston College team with AJ Dillon. If he's healthy and running the ball well, Miami's been uh, quite a bit perplexing. That is going to be an interesting game to me. Um, another game that I would say is North Carolina Virginia. Um, this Virginia team is slowly and quietly playing good football. I think that's an awful, an awfully fun game to watch. Um, I do think that uh, we mentioned another one. Kentucky, Missouri is a big one, and A and M, Mississippi State are two wins in the and in the you know Arizona State going to USC. Those games are intriguing to me at this point. I give you another one. It's it's it, it doesn't fit your category of but but Iowa Penn State mm-hmm. is a really big game. Um, you know Penn State's not been consistent. Need this game at home, not because they're in the race, but it's important for those teams and their, how they go about building their program. And Iowa's just been really good and right in the middle of the West race. I tell you the the West race of the Big Ten with Purdue and Wisconsin and Iowa. And Northwestern. It's going to be an awful lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Wisconsin-Northwestern is another one of those that's going to be an awfully fun to watch. Yeah, Purdue plays a big game this weekend as well. Did you see – Did you? See, I meant to bring this up with you. Did you see the way that Old Dominion won their game against Western Kentucky? I did. It it's was, the most bizarre ending. I've, I don't think I've ever seen an ending more bizarre than that, Chris, where yeah. you had a missed field goal, but a penalty allowed them to re-kick. Then the kick gets returned. Then a penalty on the return sets up a game-winning field goal, all with no time on the clock. I've never seen that happen in, in all my years watching football. That's bizarre. Yeah, it, because even it is would have been bizarre but even less bizarre if the kicks returned all the way yes. and you see that happen because we've but seen it, the it miracle happen, of jordan hare we saw it happen before well, we we have and <laughs> and we've seen other last plays and whatnot but to have it end on a penalty where you get another play so the game's extended <laughs> is just uh, but the game was extended really, twice because no that's the- what i'm saying <laughs> to have it happen and be extended and then to have it twice is really weird yeah that was really really <laughs> interesting to watch and you know what a what a year for odu they beat virginia tech can't beat anybody else for the most part <laughs> and i mean win, it's just, they win it this way <laughs> you know i mean it's just it's just it's just amazing the coach is trying to save his job and then he beats virginia tech and they're still trying to figure out in blackbird how the heck did that happen what can we find on landryfootball.com this week Hey, all the breakdowns, you know, we, we, we're we getting into a lot of different stuff now as we're getting towards the back end of the season. We're focusing a lot on the teams that are still in contention. But, you know, we break down every game every week after it's played, all the all the conference games, all the big-time schools. We break down what happened in the game uh, and tell you why things happen and begin to look ahead to next week's game. So that's what we do for you there. We do it on the NFL end as well. We're updating a lot of recruiting information. The early signing day in December is, you know, fast approaching. And as the season kind of ends on uh, 
on the conference championship week, boom, recruiting day is right around the early signing days, right around the corner. So a lot of this is what we're going to be breaking down is how these teams look inside the film room and, and really start to, to break down these teams as we do here every week. We're going to do it on LandryFootball.com, breaking down all the contenders and who really looks good inside the film room and who are the best teams in the country and the best players. And we got all the draft information as well, um, evaluating all the prospects in all these games each and every week. So it's one-stop shopping football. If you like football, you'll love LandryFootball.com. Help us help the victims of all the storms by uh, by becoming a member today. We'll donate 50% of that and buy supplies for them. It's a great opportunity to get involved in LandryFootball.com. If you're not yet a member, uh, you're, you're, you're cheating yourself. It's a great opportunity to learn more about the game and get more involved in the game of college football and the NFL. That's right. You can join all 32 NFL teams and 78 major college football programs by becoming a member of LandryFootball.com. Get in on all the latest inside information from the guy that the college and NFL programs turn to as a consultant on coaching and scouting matters. For less than a magazine subscription, you get the film room breakdowns on recruiting, college football, draft, NFL, and coaching search matters. And you check out LandryFootball.com today for the best membership package ever you can get monthly three six nine months or yearly you get all the access to the insights of veteran coach scout and administrator chris landry all you got to do is tell them where you heard about that deal and don't forget each tuesday and thursday the landry football podcast and each wednesday new episodes of this rush the field college football podcast which can be found on apple Podcasts, stitcher tune in radio google play and radioinfluence.com i'm scott seidenberg you hit me up on twitter at scott's on air he's chris landry on twitter at landry football chris we'll do it again next week hey look forward to it scott thank you so much This is a Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Guess what, everybody? We get to welcome Chef Chad Minton, the founder and the president of True Cooks. We spend a lot of time on these things, and there's a lot of back and forth. And, you know, it's very much like, you know, running your restaurant. And you you make a menu, you know, uh, whatever it be, quarterly, you know, however you determine to change your menu. But, you know, you, you think about the dishes and, and, and you think about things that work well in the past and you think about, you know, things that your guests like that they're asking for. And, and but at the same time, you know, once you hit a point in your career, you know, there's only so many times you can do tomato, mozzarella and basil <laughs> until you have to kind of start pushing you know, pushing these combinations and, 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 and seeing how far you can take it as, as a craftsman. And, you know, you put all of this data together and you knock yourself out and you make this new menu and, you know, you're satisfied with it and you, 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 you keep your fingers crossed and hope and pray that the guests like it and they do and everything sells and it's a huge home run and you go home and you start the next day from scratch again. Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.